Well, I suspect you all have that favourite picture. That picture, photo, painting, whatever, that when it first went up on the wall, you thought, this is fantastic. I really like that and I like where I've put it. And then as days turn into weeks and weeks into months, you kind of stop noticing it. You know it's there, but if somebody took it down, it might take you a week before you realise. You all have that picture? There's something about familiarity that stops us noticing it. Of all the stories, of all the accounts of Jesus' life, the crucifixion is perhaps the one with which we are most familiar. And if familiarity might breed contempt, if not contempt, it certainly dulls our appreciation. So this morning I just want to take some time to pause uh, to reflect on this account of Jesus' crucifixion, to re-examine it, to, to try and see it afresh, remind ourselves of it. And as we do so, I want to make three main observations about Jesus' crucifixion. The first observation I want to make is that we see that it is entirely within God's sovereign plan, God's powerful plan that he has brought about. This section in particular, I mean, we get hints of this all through John's Gospel, but this section in particular is just dripping with Old Testament allusions uh, and also with some of those major themes we've seen being played out through John's Gospel. Uh, so we had uh, the, the first reading from Psalm 22, a Psalm of David, uh, and you may have noticed uh, in that reading and then the subsequent one that there are lots of points of connection. Uh, psalm 69 is another one in the background of this, another psalm of David depicting God's anointed king as the righteous sufferer. And if you were to read Isaiah 53, as the prophet Isaiah talks about the suffering servant who will bear the sins of the people, again, you'll see, you'll be able to tick them off, the parallels with Jesus' crucifixion. This is no accident. In Jesus' crucifixion, we see these themes of the anointed king, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who would come after David, and we see the idea of the righteous sufferer, the suffering servant, being brought together in the person of Jesus. And not only in uh, completing these Old Testament allusions, but in the very events themselves, we see uh, that things unravel entirely in accordance with God's plan, entirely in accordance with the fulfilment of Scripture, which God had caused to be written centuries beforehand. So even in the detail of uh, Pilate's uh, declaration over Jesus' head, king of the Jews, we see Jesus depicted as the suffering righteous king. And although the Old Testament and these allusions are strongly in the background, uh, John records for us a couple of points where scripture is explicitly fulfilled. So in verses 23 and 24, when he talks about the soldiers dividing up Jesus' clothes, and then casting lots for his tunic. Verse 24, let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened 
that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Quoting there from Psalm 22, Jesus is the one in the line of that, uh, the great king of Israel, King David. In fact, it's not even so much that Jesus is coming and, and copying the pattern of the king beforehand, but it's almost like centuries before God inspired David to write this. Not so Jesus could copy them, but in a sense, David was copying Jesus in advance. God intended for Jesus to come and to suffer like this. And David points to this through his own experience. Copying Jesus in advance in anticipation of Christ's fulfilment. So it's not that Christ is the king that comes after David, but Christ is the king which King David points forward to. And throughout this depiction, God is keen for us to notice through the Apostle John who recorded it. Keen to demonstrate that Jesus' death is the fulfilment of God's eternal plan. And he's keen to demonstrate this because the idea of God's eternal king dying on a cross is so unlikely, so incongruous, so far removed from the expectations of the people in that day and hard for us to comprehend. But John records this, so we might see time and time again, Jesus' death fulfills God's plan as indicated in the Old Testament scriptures. We see too that even as Jesus seems to be so powerless in this, that God is working behind all things uh, so that even the wicked uh, rejection of Jesus by the Jewish leadership the cynical concessions of Pilate and the seeming indifference of the soldiers, for which, by the way, they were all be held accountable for their guilt. But nevertheless, God has intended these things to happen so that these people might become unwitting accomplices in bringing about God's good purposes. Unwitting accomplices in his sovereign plan. So the soldiers in from the whole crucifixion scene to the dividing of the clothes, to Pilate, who wrote better than he knew, putting the sign up, King of the Jews. Uh, it's kind of ironic, Pilate, who's been so powerless uh, in the face of the, the Jewish leaders and demands, who ultimately concedes to Jesus' crucifixion, now he decides to be strong and insists, no, the sign's going to stay. What I've written, what I've written, is what I've written. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Pilate unwittingly declaring Jesus' kingship, not only to the Jewish people, but to all, as it's written in three languages. All the, the common languages of the day, so that every segment of the populace would know Jesus of Nazareth's that's hard to say quickly, isn't it? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Not only in the unwitting accomplices, but in Jesus' 
obedient and deliberate acts, we see God's plan being fulfilled. Jesus is consciously aware of Scripture. It seems his mind's so steeped in Scripture uh, that he sees its fulfilment as he asks for something to drink. And we'll pick up on that in a moment. Although Jesus seems to have so little control in this situation as the pawn of the soldiers and of Pilate and the Jewish authorities, we see he maintains his control throughout, such that even the moment of his death is controlled by Jesus in accordance with God's plan. So the first observation to make about the crucifixion here is that God perfectly achieves his plan. I don't know about you, but sometimes in our own struggles and difficulties, in our own hardships, we can be tempted to ask the question, where is God in this? How can this possibly be like this? How can any good come from this? And in the depths of that, we're tempted to doubt the goodness of God. Well, we're reminded as we see that God works out his purposes, even in the face of uh, the opposition of, uh, of the Jewish leaders, of the Romans, of Satan himself working behind the schemes, God works about to bring about his good purposes even through this. This is not God making the best of a bad situation, but God intending to use all those injustices, all those moral failures to bring about his plan. Now it's hard for us to see, even with the benefit of hindsight sometimes, how God is at work in things. But if he has promised, as he has, that he works through all things to bring about good things for those who love Christ, who love God, that God works through all things, then if God can work through this to bring about his good purposes, God is at work in all the difficulties and challenges in our life to bring about his good purposes. So we see nothing can stop God bringing about his good purposes in accordance with the fulfilment of scripture. We also see here something of Christ's loving care. We see that very intimate scene, don't we, recorded here just by John uh, with his mother and the disciple whom he loves. He loved all his disciples. That, as we've picked up elsewhere in John, is a particular term that it seems the apostle John uses to describe himself. Have a look, verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. It's hard to imagine there, isn't it? Jesus there on the cross, suffering, enduring all the pain involved in that. Close to death. Not only the physical pain, but very aware of what he is doing, what he is seeking to achieve. Bearing the guilt and sins of the whole world. There, suffering as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the whole world. And yet, 
He has time and space to think of his mother and to make provision for her. Here we see this scene of Jesus honouring her mother and entrusting her to John. I think we get a little hint here of the new family that Jesus' death will create as we are all drawn together through faith in Christ to become brothers and sisters. But it's not only that in the midst of his suffering and close to death, Jesus gives thought to his mother and the disciple whom he loved. But Jesus is there on the cross giving thought to all his disciples whom he loves. We've seen throughout John's Gospel, back in chapter 17, Jesus prayed for his disciples and those who would believe in him through their message. We've seen Jesus concerned for all that the Father had given him. We'd seen that Jesus knew that his crucifixion would draw all kinds of people to him. And he has declared his great love in laying down his life for his friends, being those who believe in him. See, Christ's loving care that he demonstrates at the cross is not just his loving care for his mother and for John, but his loving care that he shows on the cross was for us. As Jesus hung there on the cross, he had us in mind, those who would believe in him. Jesus died with us on his mind. As we consider that, we're reminded, though, at the same time, the true significance of our sin. I wonder if we... I think this is true of all of us, that we can be tempted to ignore or downplay or justify or trivialise our disobedience to God, to trivialise our rejection of him, our rejection of our loving creator and ruler, a rejection of his good and holy laws that are for our good. But the cross here is a reminder that our sin matters is deeply serious. Our sin is not trivial to God. It cost him the death of his own son. But at the same time, the cross is a reminder of God's great love for us in spite of our disobedience and rejection of him. Because the cross in the cross our sin is fully dealt with and our forgiveness is complete. It shows the seriousness of sin but the completeness, the fulfilment of the forgiveness that we have. And so the third observation I want to make, the first observation being the completion of God's plan, that it's not a surprise that it worked out exactly as he intended. The second is we see Christ's Sovereign love for even for us on the cross. And the third observation is that we see Christ's work finished. As Jesus is there, having been flogged, bloody, nailed to the cross, hanging in the sun, it's no surprise that Jesus is thirsty. 
And so he says, verse 28, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. There's a hint here of Psalm 22 that Karina read for us where the Lord's anointed, David, says, My mouth is dried up like a pot's herd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And in Psalm 69, uh, the anointed one says, They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. And it seems that both these ideas are brought together as John sees this as a fulfilment of Scripture, as Jesus sees this as a fulfilment of Scripture. A reminder that here we have great David's greatest son. And we see that everything, every part of Jesus' path to the cross is not only part of the Father's plan of redemption, of saving us, but also a consequence of the son's obedience to the father. God has brought about his plan through Jesus' obedience to the plan. And so Jesus, hanging there on the cross in fulfilment of scripture, says, I am thirsty. And so they put some wine vinegar on a sponge and on the stalk of a hyssop plant, which has allusions back to the Passover lamb whose blood would, would be spread through the branch of the hyssop, reminding us again that Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They pass this sponge up to him that his thirst might be quenched. But the idea of Jesus' thirst is not just, I think, here to satisfy that physical thirst. But a pointer back to other things Jesus has said and promised. In the previous chapter, when Peter was ready to jump out with a sword to defend Jesus and prevent his arrest, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? In obedience to the Father, the cup there is the cup of God's anger, God's wrath. And Jesus, as he thirsts on the cross, is willing to drink the cup that takes our punishment for us. So Jesus thirsts that he might take that punishment away from us, drink the cup the Father has given him. He also thirsts that he might give life, give living water, Living water, he says, that will well up in the heart of believers to eternal life. Jesus is dying there on the cross as the bread of life, which he said he gives so that those who come to him will never go hungry and those who believe in him will never be thirsty. Christ thirsts so that we will be filled. Christ thirsts so that we won't be hungry or thirsty that we can come to him and enjoy true life. And in completion of these things, when he had received the drink, Jesus says, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Gave up the ghost, as the old translations say. Jesus says, it is finished. 
as he says this, he's not saying, thank goodness this is over. But he's declaring all is accomplished. Mission accomplished. It is finished. Well, what has Jesus' death accomplished? Well, all the things that he talked about throughout the gospel of what his death would achieve, of what he had come into the world to do. It is accomplished that he has loved his own who are in the world and he has loved them to the end. It is accomplished that the prince of this world, Satan, will be driven out. He says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. It is finished. God has opened the way through Jesus' death that all may come to him and have life. It is finished. Jesus has overcome the world, as he had said. He has done so in obedience to the one who sent him. And he says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and then believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is finished. Jesus has accomplished all that is needed so that all who have faith in him will be certain of our own resurrection on the last day. It is finished. It is accomplished. Jesus says, I am the living bread who came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. It is finished. Jesus has completed that work so that we will have life forever through the life that he gave for the world. It is finished. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. It is finished. There's nothing more for us to do. There's nothing more that God needs to do in order that we might have eternal life with him, our sins forgiven, our relationship restored. And so John is keen to demonstrate all these things in his account of Jesus' death, which God has caused for us to have, keen to demonstrate that Jesus' death is the fulfilment of God's eternal plan, which reverses the effects of the fall, reverses the effect of all our sin, and rescues God's people. God is keen that we know all these details, that we might know the certainty of it, because the idea of God's eternal king dying on a cross is so unbelievable, unlikely, so far removed from our expectations. And John has recorded it so that we may believe, continue to believe, that Jesus died on our behalf as God's long-awaited Passover lamb. It is finished. So if you're ever tempted to doubt God's goodness, we can look at the cross and see that through all the evil in the world, all the evil the world can throw against him, God has brought about his good purposes. If you're ever temp tempted to doubt the seriousness of, the, of sin, 
then we need only look to the cross and see the cost that Jesus bore. But if we're ever tempted to doubt God's love for us, we need only look to the cross and see the price he was willing to pay. And if we think of the seriousness of sin and we ever tempted to doubt the total forgiveness that we have in Christ, we need only to look at the cross and his cry, it is finished, all is accomplished. And if you ever doubt the confidence we can have of eternal life to come, we need only look at the cross and hear Jesus' words, it is finished, all is accomplished. Let's give thanks to God for Christ and all he has done for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for your love for us that you sent Jesus into the world, that he became one of us, that he might die in our place. Father, we thank you for Christ's love for us and his obedience, that he went and endured the pain and suffering and humiliation of the cross and the pain of drinking the cup of your wrath so that we might be spared. Help us to see the cross afresh, to see the depth of all that it means to us, of your goodness, of your love for us, of sins forgiven and eternal life. Help us to live in confidence in the light of all you've done for us in Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.